that good singing. Let's open our Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it might take us a minute or two to get there, because I want to say a word about what we preached on this morning to give you a little bit of context. But uh, we are going to take our text out of 1 Corinthians 15 this evening. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 33 and 34. Uh, we're going to read those and pray. And uh, I want to preach to you. I want to, if I can, continue the thought that I was preaching this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 33. Paul says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the privilege of being in your house tonight. Thank you for, Lord, the the Spirit of God whom we've already felt. We know He has taken up residence perpetually, eternally, immovably in our lives. But Lord, it's awful good when we can tell that that He's pleased, that He's honored, that He's in what's taking place in a service. And Lord, I believe, I'm convinced that He is. And I just trust, Father, that You're going to do a work in our hearts and minds. Now, help us to have our hearts and minds open and to receive the Word that's preached as it is in truth the Word of God, not merely the Word of men, but, Lord, as a message for this hour, for this moment, for these people, that You might minister Your truth in our hearts. Lord, we will be sure to thank You for it, and we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm interested in the first three words that are used in verse 33. And if you were here this morning, then you already know where we're going to be going and some of what we're going to be preaching on. But five times in the Word of God, we find this trio of words in this exact way. Paul exhorts the church at Corinth, and he says, Be not deceived. Now, I'm going to do my best to not re-preach what I preached on this morning, but I do want to give a little synopsis of what we preached on, so that for those that weren't able to be here, they understand where we're coming from, where we're at. You know, we're living in a day when the vast majority of people are living under deception. They believe things that just simply are not true, are not so. Uh, One of the things that's been fascinating, a phenomenon that we've seen, is that according to all the sources, the taxes, people paid less in taxes on average. Not everybody, but on average, people paid less in taxes this year than they have in previous years as a proportion to their income. But when they polled people, they found that most people did not believe that they had paid less in taxes than what they actually had. In fact, they were earning more and having to give less in taxes, but they'd been told over and over and over and over and over again that certain policies were going to be bad for their pocketbook. And when tax time came, they didn't look at it. They didn't compare last year's returns to this year's returns. They just said, I I still feel broke now. felt broke before. I still feel broke now. And in fact, I feel more broke now. And yet a great many people received more money back. But they were deceived about They were told something that just slap out wasn't true. And they're now operating under that deception. They're believing something that the very simple mathematics of the matter will not allow to be true. Same thing is true. There's a whole group of people now, and all of a sudden they've become a political force. I don't know why, because they're a a very small sliver of the population. 
But there's a, a, a small contingent of people that have decided that they are not what God created them to be. They were born a man, but they've decided one day that the doctors and the scientists and your own lying eyes are lying to you, and they are in fact a woman, not a man, or they're a man, not a woman. But they are under the deception. Now this used to, this has always been around, it's just used to, we called it what it was, which was a mental illness. And those people shouldn't be despised, they should be helped, amen? Suicide rate against the transgender community is something like 40%. It is shockingly high relative to the national standard. And the reason is because they're suffering. Most of them, there might be some of them just wanting attention, but most of them that genuinely believe that, they're suffering from a mental illness, and they have deceived themselves, and now you've got all of society sitting around clapping for their deception. Amen? Imagine how destructive that would be. Imagine somebody was hearing a bunch of voices, and everybody looked at them and said, well, why don't you listen to them? Amen? That's the equivalent. But these people are deceived. They're believing something that even their own eyes tell them is not true. It is shocking the mass deception that is prevalent in the world today. And we can talk about politics, we can talk about culture, but we can talk about religion. The Bible is abundantly clear that there's only one person that can get you to heaven, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, I have have a lot, I guess, more sympathy... For the Muslim that is in a completely blinded and completely alien religion from Bible Christianity that thinks that obeying the Koran and, and doing what Muhammad has commanded him to is going to get him to heaven, then I do, for instance, the Roman Catholics that believe they're getting to heaven through the intercession of the priest. Because they purport to be Christian. And they purport to believe in the Bible. And they purport to believe in Jesus Christ. And yet Christ said plainly, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You might say, well, preacher, how do you reconcile those two things? Well, people are living under deception. And there's a lot of people think they're getting to heaven through their baptism or through their religion, through their good works, through their church membership. But in fact, they have deceived themselves. You see, the reality is this. Every one of us has the propensity towards deception. We all have a a tendency to believe things that we find comfortable, regardless of what the truth of the matter is. What does the book of Jeremiah say about the heart? That it's desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. I'll echo something that I said this morning. You'll a lot sooner believe a lie that you tell yourself than you'll believe a lie that somebody else tells you. Because your heart is deceitful above all things. In the scope of the influences that can deceive you in your life, your heart is at the top of the list. That's why it's dangerous advice. Man, I see it on church signs. Let me tell you something. I, I, I am a conservative. I believe in small government. You say, how big a government do you believe in? Well, if we're talking about it, it's too big. Amen? I, I, am, I, I am not a social libertarian in any stretch of the imagination. I believe God has a lot of opinions on things, regardless of whether it's a matter of, of a man's own privacy or not. I think God still has an opinion on it. But, but I, I, I'm a conservative, and if i got to decide between big government and small government, I'll always pick smaller government. But I, and I hate government bureaucracy. I believe it sometimes is a force of evil. But one type of bureaucracy I'd be for is if we had somebody regulating dumb messages on church signs. Somebody say amen there. Hey, let me tell you, I don't know how we'd do it. I don't know who we'd put over it all. 
But somebody needs to come to some of these churches and say, you ought to take that down, it makes you look dumb. Amen? And how many times have you seen somebody say on a church sign, follow your heart, not your friends? Hey, it could be your heart is more deceitful than even your friends are. Because your heart is deceitful above all things. Say, preacher, what should I do? Don't listen to either of them. Get a Bible. Listen to what the Word of God says. People say, follow your heart, follow your heart. People say, if I know my heart, you cannot know your heart. Who can know it? It's deceitful. You can believe that what you're doing is right. But if the Word of God and the Spirit of God have not confirmed the truth of that matter, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your heart tells you. What matters is what the authoritative truth of the Word of God and, and what the, the applicable, I'll get it here in a second, truth that the Word or that the Spirit of God has made, the application of it in your heart and life, it's a question of what that says, not what your heart says. So we all have a propensity to be deceived. And five times in your Bible, you'll find this trio of words. Be not deceived. 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 Because there's a danger in being deceived. This is true, by the way, not just for the lost crowd. It's true for the saved crowd. Even us as believers that have been given the truth and that have the author of truth has taken up residence in our heart. That doesn't mean we are beyond deception. I'd remind you that Ananias and Sapphira, they had the Holy Ghost. You know what they did? They lied to the Holy Ghost. And I would say this, they didn't lie to the Holy Ghost except they first lied to themselves and told themselves that what they were doing was right. And then once they convinced themselves that what they were doing was right, they turned around when the Holy Ghost told them it was wrong and lied to Him and said, no, it's not wrong, it's right. Even a believer has the capacity to be deceived. I know lots of believers that are deceived. And I believe they love the Lord, and I believe they're genuine, I believe they're sincere, and I, and, and I believe that they are sincerely deceived. There are things that they believe. You see, the reality is this, if you don't make room for deception, if you don't allow for the possibility of deception, then all you can do is put people into two different camps. They're either, they're either righteous or unrighteous. Can I tell you something? I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God for the English-speaking people. I believe it's inerrant. I believe it's preserved. I believe it's, I believe the inspiration has been preserved without any measure of truth, without any measure of error. I believe when I hold my King James Bible in my hand, I have as much Bible in my hand as I would if I was holding Hebrew or Greek in my hand. And in some ways, I've got something even better because I got it in one book between that pretty red leather binding and I've got it in my language, but not just my language, but the language of the world. So I believe in a practical sense we could even say it's superlative, though maybe not as far as the integrity of the truth of it superlative. We could say that it is comparable as far as the integrity of the truth. It's just as pure. But in a practical sense, I'd a lot rather have a King James Bible in English than a Textus and Receptus in Greek or a Masoretic Hebrew text because I can't read either of those, but I can read my King James Bible. Not everybody believes that. I know that. I believe there's saved people don't believe that. I believe there's saved people that love God that don't believe that. You say, what, what, how can that be, preacher? Well, because they've been deceived by the New Bible movement into believing that they have something that is of greater authenticity and greater uh, scholastic uh, integrity and so on and so forth. But here's the thing. You say, well, that's unkind, preacher. No, that's about as kind as I can make it. Because things that are different are not the same. Things that are different are not the same. Things that are different are not the same. 
You see, the reality is this. If, if they don't believe there's any difference, then why are they carrying that Bible around instead of a King James Bible around? They do believe there's a difference. You say, preacher, I thought we was preaching on not being deceived. We'll get there. You got your ticket. The bar has been pulled into place. Don't go nowhere. We're getting there. But what I'm saying is this. I allow for the fact that people can be deceived on that matter. Well-meaning, well-intentioned, love the Lord, want to do right, and simply be ill-informed on that matter. And believe the things that they're told on that matter, not having studied out for themselves. I believe that. I believe that people can love the Lord and be wrong about the King James Bible issue. Now, two things are true at the same time. They can, they can love the Lord and be wrong about the King James Bible issue. And at the same time, they both love the Lord, and we need to remember that. But number two, we also need to remember they're wrong about that issue. And we don't need to allow ourselves to compromise on the integrity and veracity and purity of the Word of God, nor in our staunchness on the position of it. We don't have to sit back and throw rocks at people that we believe are wrong. We ought to pray for them. We ought to seek to encourage them in what is truth. We ought to seek to, to, to educate them on the history of the matter and the textual integrity of the matter and the theology of the matter. But I do believe... But you see, if you don't allow for deception, all you can believe is, I'm right and they're wrong because they want to be wrong. I don't believe everybody that's wrong wants to be wrong. There's been plenty of times in my life I've been wrong, and I didn't want to be wrong, but I was deceived about things. And even on a daily basis, I can deceive myself about things. I'm saying this, that even for believers, deception is a possibility. We can deceive ourselves on these matters and on many other matters. And so God gives the injunction five times. You better watch yourself, because deception can set in. We looked at three of them this morning. I'll just gently remind you of them in Deuteronomy 11. God gives the instruction to the children of Israel. He says, Take heed to yourselves that you, your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And I believe God here is telling us not to be deceived about the path to heaven. Uh, all gods are not the same. In fact, there is only one true God. And all roads do not lead to heaven. Uh, that, uh, all roads do not lead to the same place. You can't believe anything you want and get to heaven. You must believe the truth of the Word of God. You must believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe in the Christ of Scripture. And you must give your heart and life to Him. And that can get you to heaven. No other way can get you to heaven. The world tells us there's many paths to heaven, but that's illogical. There's not many paths that lead to one place. There's not many paths, really, that lead to any place. I, I, I have a driveway, and there's a lot of roads that can get you to my part of town. There's a lot of roads that can get you to my neighborhood. There's fewer roads that you can, can get you to my road. But when you start getting close to the driveway, there's only one road that's going to get you in. Hey, there's a lot of roads that can get you in the neighborhood of what Christianity is. There's even a few roads that can look like they're leading to the right place though they are very, very subtly deceptive. But there's only one right way, there's only one real way, there's only one true way, and it's revealed to us through the truth of the Word of God. At the end of the day, we don't need to be deceived about the path to heaven. In Luke 21, 8, Christ warned His disciples, He said, Take heed that you be not deceived. For many shall come in My name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. We need to be careful lest we be deceived about the person of Christ. There's a lot of different Christs being preached today. 
a lot of different versions or, or, or uh, interpretations of who Jesus is. We gave you a few of them, the spiritual Christ. That's the idea that He's a myth. He didn't really live. He's just a figment of our collective imagination. Or if He did live, we've taken Him and created Him into legend. John said that if anybody says that Jesus did not come in the flesh, He's not of God, that that's the spirit of Antichrist. The sinful Christ, the idea that Christ lived a life like you or I lived, that He uh, committed sin and, and unrighteousness, and every few years there'll be something that they'll pick out of the uh, history's garbage heap and, and try to say, well, this is Bible. And uh, the, A few of them that have come out late, one of them purported that Jesus had an affair with Mary Magdalene. Well, listen, and I can tell you a lot of reasons that's not true, but can I give you the very simple one? Because the Jesus that my Bible presents to me, the Jesus that saved me, the Jesus that I know to be real, that Jesus, as He's presenting the Word of God, would have and could have never done that and still been the Jesus that He was presented to be. One of them came out said that Judas was in on the crucifixion and that, uh, that he was actually a key player in it uh, with Christ's blessing and with Christ's participation. Uh, in other words, suggesting that Christ had, had per- perpetrated that deception upon the disciples. That's not the Jesus that my Bible preaches. That's a sinful Christ. And any Christ that, that takes a light attitude towards sin, that, that has a permissive and dismissive attitude about sin, that's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. There's the social Christ. The social Christ is the one that didn't come to save sinners. He came to put shoes on people's feet and fill people's bellies and dig wells. Now, I'm not against any of those things happening. But Jesus came not that He might uh, uh, renovate society. Not that He might revolutionize our social system. He came that He might save sinners, change their life. He did not come to make the world a better place. He came that He might make men better men, that He might save them, in spite of the fact that the world's getting worse and worse. And then we talked about the satanic Christ. And that's the man of sin. And the world's gearing up for Him. They're trying to get everybody under one big tent so that they can all worship in one false religion. We talked about the Father's Christ. The Christ of the Bible. Man, He's he's singular. There's none like Him. He's scriptural. He's exactly what the Bible says Him to be. He's sinless. Uh, He knew no sin. He did no sin. In Him was no sin. He is superlative. In all things, He has the preeminence. There's none like Him. And He's sovereign. One of these days, every knee's going to bow before Him. Every tongue's going to confess. So we need to be careful that we're not deceived about the person of Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 6... Paul says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says, And such were some of you. But ye are washed, he says, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We need to be uh, careful lest we be deceived about the proof of a changed life. God, when He saves a man, He changes a man. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. Me and my wife were talking a little bit about that today. Man, that's interesting. God showed me something I'd never really noticed. It ain't the things that change. It's the creature that changes. He's a new creature. A Christian can try to go back to those old things, and he may even participate in those things. But they won't be like they were back then. Those old things are passed away. 
And now when he grabs hold of them, it's like a new thing. He can sin, but he ain't going to sin and enjoy it. He might participate in it, but it ain't going to be like it once was. Why? Those things haven't changed. No. But he's changed. And now he can't interact with the world around him like he once did. Listen, we, we live in a day, and you can call it easy believism if you want to. You can, you can call it any number, cheap grace. There's a thousand things to call it. But can I just tell you where I stand on this? I don't believe it's hard to be saved. I don't believe it's complicated to be saved. I believe a person, we was talking about it in Sunday school this morning, just like Nebuchadnezzar, he looked, he lifted his eyes towards heaven, and then his understanding returned to him. The prodigal son, when he came to himself, he just thought in his mind about his father. He cast his mind's eye back to his father. The book of Isaiah says, Look unto me, all ye nations. Uh, listen, whenever they were out in the wilderness and they were bitten by the serpents, all they had to do was look and live. And if the Son of Man be lifted up, He'll draw all men unto Himself. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must also the Son of Man be lifted up. And all we have to do is look unto Him, and we can live. I don't believe it's complicated to be saved. But I do believe this with a million percent of my heart. I, I, I believe that it's simple to be saved. But I don't believe being saved is merely acknowledging theological facts. I believe it's the submitting and surrendering of our will to God's will. That don't mean I understand everything it's going to mean to be a Christian when I got saved. I was 10 years old. I didn't understand everything about it. That don't mean I understood every sacrifice I was going to have to make serving God. doesn't mean that I understood every battle I was going to have to fight living for Him. But it does mean this. I didn't come to yoke up with Him. I came and fell at His feet and said, Lord, hey, I I didn't come so that He could just help me along. I came and fell on Him. And I said, Lord, carry me. I can't do this. I give up, Lord, and I give myself to You. And when I did that, he changed me. I was a 10-year-old boy. Probably not a lot in the outward appearance of my life changed. But the trajectory of my life was adjusted and changed dramatically. And I couldn't do the things, even the small things, even things we might dismiss as just childish behavior. But to me, it was sin because I knew right from wrong. Couldn't do those things and enjoy them like I once could. God changed me. I believe when God saves a man, He changes him. He ain't always going to live like he's saved. But listen, he ain't never again going to live like he's lost. He ain't always going to live like a Christian should. But he ain't going to be able to live like a lost man would. He's going to be different. God's going to change his life. And if he sins, God's going to chasten his children. Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every one of his. He's not going to be able to live in sin without it bothering him. You need to be careful. People that preach uh, that uh, salvation is just a mental ascendancy, a mental a hat tip to certain theological truths, that's not what the Bible teaches it to be. And people that claim that uh, we can believe on the Lord and we're not going to be changed, that we're, God's not going to radically transform our lives, that we can live the same old lives that we used to and it not bother us, uh, people, there's some people that, man, they, they, they treat, they treat Bible Christianity, they treat the eternal destination of a man's soul as though he's trying to pick out what color car he's gonna buy. Does he want a red one? Does he want a blue one? I don't believe it's complicated. But listen, I don't believe it's a frivolous thing either. I, I, listen, I believe when we come to the Lord, I believe it's a serious matter. We've made a life-changing decision, and it is indeed life-changing. We need to be cautious, cautious that we don't be deceived about the proof of a changed life. And then in our passage this evening, I want to mention two more to you. And we'll close. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul exhorts the believers at the church of Corinth. And he says this. This is interesting language. He says, Be not deceived. 
evil communications corrupt good manners. That's fascinating language for two reasons. One, because it reveals to us an important spiritual truth. But two, because it's presented to us in the greater context of teaching about the resurrection. And what Christ is saying, or what Paul is saying here is this. He just got through saying, if Christ be not raised, then you're dead in your sins. Your faith is in vain. And what he's telling them is this, the doctrine that you adhere to and the doctrine that you embrace is going to dictate your behavior. He's saying if you reject the resurrection of Christ, that's going to change the way you live and change the way you behave. You remember he said, how be there some among you that preach that Christ is not raised from the dead? Evidently, there are some folks around the church of Corinth that was preaching that mythical Christ. That, that Christ that was just an allegory. That Christ did not physically, bodily raise from the dead. And Paul says, you better be careful with that crowd. Because if you start believing what they believe, their evil communication, their bad doctrine, that's going to corrupt your good manners. And if you start embracing what they teach and what they believe, it's going to change the way that you behave. Can I say it this way? We as believers, we need to be careful, we need to be cautious, and we need to be not deceived concerning the people we run with. You know, the fact of the matter is this. There's some folks that think it's their mission to rescue every downtrodden, every hopeless, helpless person in the world. These are the same kind of people that bring in stray cats. Somebody say amen to that. Man, I don't mind, I don't mind people bringing in stray cats. Everybody gotta eat. Amen. But, <laughs> now, I, really, I, being serious, all joking aside, it don't matter to me whether you got cats or dogs or whatever. You might have a hundred strays in your house. That don't bother me. But I am saying this, that I think that there is sometimes a tendency in people's hearts to feel like they can fix everybody and everything. You see sometimes people like this with relationships. You ever met somebody that their problem was they thought they could fix her or they thought they could fix him? And they made a mess of their life. They spent their whole life trying to fix somebody or trying to fix something. And there's a tendency sometimes people... I think sometimes it comes from a good place. They're genuinely empathetic and sympathetic and compassionate. But in doing so, they often put themselves in the way of danger. Listen, well, there's a reason we say one bad apple spoils the bunch. The wrong crowd, you're not going to elevate them. Listen, they're going to bury you. And you better be careful in thinking that you can hold any associations you want and it's not going to affect you. We find in this passage a sad truth is declared. Look at verse 34. And you better listen to this now. He says, awake to righteousness and sin not. Listen to this next phrase. For some have not the knowledge of God. You better get it in your head. Because some folks don't know the Lord. You better get it in your head that not everybody's a Christian. You better get it in your head that not even everybody that says they're a Christian is a Christian. And you better come to terms with the sad truth that there's some folks that will bury you if you give them a place in your life. You better recognize, and sometimes it's intentional, and sometimes it's just by by virtue of the fact that they're going to influence you. Sometimes they want to sink you. They want to wreck your testimony. I think more often than not, it's just they want somebody else to live like they're living. 
But regardless of the reason, you ain't going to lift them. They're going to lower you. And you better go ahead and just own the fact. Not everybody out there that says they're a Christian is a Christian. And let me even go a step further and say this. Not everybody that is a Christian is a good influence. Can I say this as it relates to a church family? Hey, listen, I love everybody that's a member of Wall Ridge Baptist Church. But even in a church, if you're not careful, those people that can drag you down. You say, name names, preacher. Oh, you're carnal. <laughs> I'm saying that it don't matter where you're at. Even in the safety and security of the local church, there can be people that can drag you down a wrong path. Hey, listen, there's been a lot of young people married somebody in the church and it wrecked their life. There, there's been a lot, hey, there's been a lot of families got to hanging out with the wrong couple or the wrong family or the wrong group at church and it let them out of church. I'm saying you better be cautious because the wrong crowd will wreck you. And it's not small potatoes. It's not trivial things. The sad reality is this. Not everybody knows God. And even of those that do know God, not all of them are good for you. You better guard carefully your associations because who you run with is eventually who you're going to be. You spend enough time with you. You see it with married couples, man. You get, I don't know at what age it happens, but you've been married long enough, you just start looking like each other. Amen? You pray for my wife. She's got a rough road ahead of her, if that's true. So, (laughs) listen, you hang around somebody long enough, you're going to start acting like them. You're going to start looking like them. You're going to start talking like them. You're going to start doing the things that they're doing. You're going to start tolerating the things that they tolerate. You're going to start endorsing the things that they endorse. I'm saying this. You better be careful in thinking that you can get away with it and knowing that no one else can. Why do we tell our kids they better be careful who they hang out with if we're not going to be careful who we hang out with? Why do we tell our kids that if they get around the wrong crowd, that's going to influence them the wrong way? And we dismiss that. You see, the reality is not everybody knows God. And don't be deceived in thinking that you can fix everybody. Don't be deceived in thinking that they're not so bad after all. That's an awful high risk. That's an awful big gamble to take. You better be careful. The sad truth is declared. Look back at verse number 33. So a sobering truth is declared. It's going to rub off on you. You hang around that crowd long enough, they'll make you what they are. So what do we need to do? I like what Paul says in verse 34. He says, awake to righteousness and sin not. Paul says you better wake up to these things. Not everybody knows God. Not everybody that says they know God knows God. Not everybody that knows God is a good influence. And you better not be deceived in thinking that the people you run with are not going to affect you. That's why you ought to surround yourself in your life with people that love the Lord. People that challenge you in your spiritual walk. People that are faithful to the house of God. People that are faithful to their Bible. People that are faithful in the prayer closet. Because you hang around that crowd long enough, that's what it'll make you. You see, this isn't just a negative principle. There's a positive side to it. Hey, you see Joshua in the Old Testament, and every time you see him, he's always with Moses. He's always where Moses is. He's always doing what Moses is doing. He's always helping Moses in the ministry. And in fact, there's a time or two when the Bible says that Moses left the tabernacle and Joshua was just so consumed with communing with God that Joshua just hung around behind. And after many long years, you know what happened when it came time to pass the baton? God said, go get me Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses, he's been around you long enough that he's become like you. 
And I know if I can trust you, Moses, I can trust him. That wasn't by accident. Hey, Elisha spent his time around Elijah, and he got a double portion. I'm saying if we'll be around, if we'll hang around the right kind of people, God can use that to minister in our lives. But if we hang around the wrong kind of people, Satan can use that to bury us in our lives. And you may think you're above it. You may think, well, it ain't going to affect me. It ain't going to happen to me. You might say, preacher, I'm an adult. You might say, preacher, I'm an aged saint of God. It doesn't matter. You hang around the wrong... You hang around people that are cynical about the Word of God. You hang around people that have a bad spirit about the local church and the house of God. You hang around people that have a bad spirit about preaching. You hang around people that have a a, a doubting spirit about prayer. You hang around people that have a a greedy spirit about giving. Sooner or later, that's going to rub off on you. What do I do, preacher? Surround yourself by people. I always try to do this. I always try to hang out with people that are better than me. That's why I married who I married. Amen? I thought, I'm either going to bury her or she's going to lift me. Amen? One of the two. And I try to surround myself. And I do this with my preacher friends. Listen, I, there, there's, and I hope, I hope this is all said in the right spirit. I believe it will be. I mean it in the, in the right way. But I know preachers that will only hang out with other preachers that they believe to be inferiors. And they do that because it elevates their sense of self-importance. I've tried, and I think you've seen the fruit of it, man, because I, th- I think we don't have anybody come around and preach here that can't preach me under the table. I mean that. I try to get around. Now, part of that is because I want to minister to you, but part of it is because I want to get around them. And I try to surround myself with preachers that I think are better preachers and pastors that I think are better pastors and Christians that I think are better Christians because I want to be around that right crowd. And I want them to rub off on my life. I don't want to sit around and have to pull everybody else up all the time. That's what a pastor does a lot. Every now and again, I need a crowd I can get in that's going to pull me up and going to lift me up and going to encourage me and going to iron or sharpen iron. I'm, I'm saying this, who you surround yourself with is going to dictate who you become. So you better be careful who you run with. Turn over to the book of Galatians. I'll give you one final thought and be done tonight. I, I believe we need to be careful and be not deceived concerning the people that we run with. But in Galatians chapter 6, we find one more instance of this trio of words. Galatians 6, verse number 7, Paul says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth through his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. He says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap. If we faint not. So we need to be not deceived concerning the path to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. We need to be not deceived concerning the person of Christ. There aren't many Christs. There's only one true Christ to the Bible. You better know Him. You better know Him. We need to be not deceived concerning the proof of a changed life. This cheap grace, that ain't going to matter in the day of judgment. That ain't going to matter when... Hey, that cheap grace, that's not going to cut it when a person leaves this world. We better know that we've got the real thing. We need to be uh, careful that we be not deceived concerning the people we run with. You better make sure the people you're hanging around are close to God and are the real thing. And finally, you better be not deceived concerning the principle of sowing and reaping. There's an idea, There's a. it's a movement really is what it is, or a belief system. But it's called antinomianism. That's a big old $10 word. But what antinomianism basically believes and means is this, that there are really no moral boundaries, that sin is relative, 
and that because of the grace of God, we can really live any way that we want, and we're never going to have to answer for it. Now, let me make a plain statement to you. I believe that when I came to Christ, that He, uh, the finished work of Christ on Calvary, the price He paid for my sins, I believe God looked at that and He said, it's finished, it's paid in full, it's done, it'll never be put to the account of Toby Weber because my son Jesus Christ paid his debt. I believe that the prospect of me dying in my sins was dealt with at Calvary. And I believe that as a sinner, judgment has already been passed on Christ for my sins. And I'm not hoping that one of these days I get to heaven and find out I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved not because I'm a good person, not because I feel good. I know I'm saved because I did what God asked of me, and I believe God's promise. I believe that God will do what He said He would do. So, we're not talking about one of these days if we live wrong, God's going to send us to hell. If we're a Christian that's already been settled, we've been sealed under the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of promise, the earnest of our redemption. But I do recognize this, that there are three ways in which God judges a human being. He judges them as a sinner. Now, the judgment that would be passed upon me, the wrath of God that abided on me before me getting saved, that's already been dealt with. That's been assuaged. That's been abetted by the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. I'll never be judged as a sinner apart from my relationship with God, isolated and separated from my position in Him. I'll never be judged as a sinner. Uh, I recognize that right now I'm being judged in the way I live as a son. I'm a son of God. Beloved, now we're the sons of God. And right now, if I am disobedient to the Lord, my heavenly Father, He treats me just like an earthly father would. He chastens me. He chastens me. He allows trials and suffering into my life to get my attention, not because He hates me, but because He loves me. And right now, He's dealing with us as sons. If you receive chastening, God dealeth with you as, with, as sons, the writer in Hebrews said. If we receive chastening, God dealeth with us as with sons right now in the present. One of these days, when I die, I'm going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Really, I believe one of these days that uh, probably during the tribulation period is when the judgment seat of Christ will probably take place. But one of these days, I'm going to stand there at the judgment seat, the Bema seat. This is the day when Paul said we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Every one of us is going to give an account for the things we've done the deeds in our body, whether they be good or whether they be bad, he said in 1 Corinthians 3. One day, on that day, I'm going to be judged as a servant relative to how I've lived my life and how obedient I've been to the Lord and what I've done with the opportunities that He's given to me. And I need to recognize that as it relates to that first type of judgment as a sinner, hey, I've passed from death into life, I'll not come into condemnation, John 5:24 says. I'll not be judged as a sinner. But right now in my life, if I sow in disobedience, I'll reap chastening because I'm being judged as a son. And I need to recognize that if I sow in disobedience or if I sow in apathy and in laziness and in inactivity, then one of these days at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to reap lost and missed rewards and lost opportunities to give glory to the Lord. Here's what I'm getting at. There's a lot of folks saying they can live any way that they want and they're never going to have to answer for it. And I'm trying to get you to understand that theologically speaking, even just because you're saved by God's grace, that don't mean there's not going to be a reckoning one day. That don't mean one day you're not going to have to give an account for the things that you've done. Paul said we're going to have to give an account for the things that we've done. We're going to have to answer for the life that we've lived. 
Now those things, before we got born again, those were under the blood. They're under Calvary. They've been dealt with. They've been addressed. But the way that we've lived our life in light of our Christian responsibilities, we are very much going to have to give an account for one day. The question will not be whether we'll go to heaven or go to hell. That's already been dealt with by Christ on Calvary. But the question is, how much glory will we have given to our Father? How many rewards will we receive? Not because it's about the money. Because it ain't about the money. You understand that uh, the, the, the street in that city is going to be paved with gold. It ain't about the money. That's not why we want crowns. And in fact, the crowns that Paul was talking about wasn't crowns like the crown of the King of England or Queen of England wears, but they'd just be wreaths of leaves. But it was a great honor to win that crown. One of these days, the Bible says, we're going to cast our crowns at His feet. I don't want to be empty-handed on that day. What I'm saying is this, or some folks think, some folks say I can live however I want because of grace. And there's two ways of saying that. You can say it like, well, I can live any old way I want to because of grace. And that'd be wrong. Uh, Listen, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, God forbid. He says, if you say that, you don't understand what grace is about. The grace of God teacheth us that denying ourselves, we should live soberly and righteously in this present world. The grace of God doesn't come along and say, live any old way you want. The grace of God comes along and says, now you can live like God wants you to. You don't have to live like you used to. Grace was not given to get us out from under the law. It was given to get us above the law. That we might live in a way superlative to the righteousness that the law could provide. Christ looked at His disciples and He said, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, He shall not see the kingdom of God. How could that be? These are people that are tithing and mincing cumin. These are people that are fasting multiple times a week. These are people that are giving of everything that they have. How could our righteousness exceed that? They were doing it out of duty. But we get to do it out of thankfulness and gratitude and out of grace. We get to do it not because we have to. We get to do it because we get to. How many of you know this? It's a lot better for somebody to be doing something because they get to do it than for them to be doing it because they have to do it. It's a lot better for people to be doing it because they get to do it. If you don't believe that, if you got teenagers and ask them to do anything, you'll know the difference. <sighs> They turn into monsters. Hey, listen. But you want to see what the difference is? Go and find that young couple that just fell in love. And listen when she says, Honey, would you go get me something to drink? Stands to attention. What do you want? Ice, no ice. Pepsi, Coca-Cola. What do you want? He's doing it because he gets to do it. That teenager's doing it because he has to do it. Under the law, they did it because they had to do it. Under grace, we do it because we get to do it. God puts a want to. Lester Olaf used to say this. He used to say, I do all the drinking I want to. He'd say, I do all the cussing I want to. He'd say, I do all, I, I, I do all the sinning that I want to. He said, it's just when since I got saved, God took my want to away. I don't do it because I have to. I do it because I get to. And I do right because it's what I want to do. You better recognize that, hey, listen, I don't care who you are. One of these days, we're going to give an account for the way that we live our lives. Grace was given not so that we could live permissively and sinfully and unrighteously. If you think that's what grace is, that's what, hey, listen, and the church of God misses that. The church of God, they, they, one of the, one of the great, uh, castigations that they'll level against us Baptists, because I believe in once saved, always saved. Because I believe anything that God does, He does right the first time. I believe when He saves a man, He saves him eternally. And a lot of times the charismatics, the church of God, church of Christ, they'll say, 
Well, you're telling me you believe that you can live any old way that you want and still get to heaven? No, I'm saying this. Yeah, I could live any old way I want, but the grace of God has made it to where I don't want to live any old way I want. I want to live the way He wants. They don't understand the grace of God in that respect. I'm saying this, you ever get a a dose of the grace of God, it'll take your want to away to do the wrong thing. It'll put a want to to do the right thing. It's God that worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The grace of God will put the right want to in your heart. He'll take away the wrong want to. And He'll put the right want to in there. And He'll change the way that you want to live. We We ain't even talking about sowing and reaping, but I'm enjoying it a little bit now. But you better recognize you can't, listen, you can't live any old way you want and think that you're not going to have to answer for it. You're going to give an account. The Bible says every idle word, every idle word will be brought up again one day. Everything we say in passing will be brought up again one day. Everything that we didn't say that we should have said will be brought up again one day. I'm saying this, we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't care who you are. And if you think that being saved by grace means that you're not accountable to God anymore to live righteously, you don't understand what the grace of God is. You don't understand what the grace of God does. The fact is, God give us grace not to, not to uh, release us from our responsibilities. God gave us grace to equip us for our responsibilities. Not so that we could run away from accountability, but so that we could step up to accountability. And so that we could live right and do right. And there's a crowd out there today that wants to tell you that grace means that you can live in sin. That's not what grace means. They're everywhere. You get on social media, they're everywhere. They want you to clap when they do the wrong thing. They want you to shout when they live in sin. They, they want, they, listen, they want you to encourage them when they live in, in rebellion. And, and they'll paint up in, in dramatic terms their sin. They'll talk about, well, I'm finally living for me. I'd rather see you live for God. You say, well, I'm finally doing what I think is right. I'd rather see you do what God thinks is right. And if you don't clap for them, son, they'll hit that unfriend button. They'll cut you out. Now, let me tell you something. If I've been unfriended by anybody lately, I ain't aware of it. So I'm preaching this from some kind of, uh, some, from some kind of nest. <laughs> but I'm saying this, there's that crowd out there. And what they want is they want everybody to applaud them in their unrighteousness. And they claim that if you're not doing that, it's because you're negative and you're critical and you're scornful. But that's not necessarily true. Now, there are a lot of folks that are happy when when you fall. But listen, I'm not happy when folks fall. But I'm also not happy when they do wrong. I'm happy when they do right. I'm I'm not excited to see them go down the wrong path. It don't matter how happy they are about it. It don't matter how proud they are of it. It don't matter how pleased they are with it. I'm not going to clap for them if I think they're going down the wrong road and doing something destructive. Because one of these days, sooner or later, they're going to reap what they sow. And listen, God help me if I'm going to stand here with them while they're broadcasting unrighteousness and clap for them. Because I believe I'll also be present at that day when harvest time comes. And I'll have to look them in the eye when they're having to live with the heartache that they've sowed. I'm saying this, I don't care who you are, one of these days, you're going to reap what you've sowed. I see three simple truths here, and I'm just going to say them to you. I see that there's a pride in dismissing this truth. It says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. To think that we're never going to have to give an account for the way we live is a form of mocking God. It's suggesting He's not smart enough or powerful enough to call us into account. 
And when people claim they can live any old way they want, God's never going to have anything to say about it. It's because they believe He ain't got power enough to have anything to say about it. You say, I don't know if I see it that way. Well, evidently God sees it that way. Because for a person to claim they're not going to reap what they sow, Paul says, is for them to mock God. And it's the epitome of pride to think that everybody else is going to answer for the way they live, but you ain't going to have to answer for the way you live. It's the epitome of pride to think that somehow you're going to skirt the, the standard. Somehow you're going to miss the responsibility. It's the epitome of pride to think somehow you can circumvent God's authority and become an authority in your own life. There's a pride in dismissing this. There is a price in ignoring this truth. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. You can live any old way you want. That's true. And you'll live with the consequences of it. Hey, listen, you know what? At the end of the day, I've learned, and it's only took me about eight years, I've learned that at the end of the day, you just can't make people do what they don't want to do. It don't matter how nice you are or how ugly you are about it. It don't matter how tactful you are or how brazen you are about it. It don't matter how calm you are or how passionate you are about it. At the end of the day, if they ain't got no want to to do what's right, they're probably not going to do it. And at the end of the day, if God can't put it in in their heart because they're unwilling to receive it, then I as a pastor probably can't put it in their heart and make them receive it. At the end of the day, I can't make them have that want to to do what's right. But I can warn them of this reality, that sooner or later, how you live your life, you're going to have to live with the consequences of it. The father couldn't keep the prodigal son at home. But listen now, the prodigal, he couldn't keep the consequences of his sin away either. You can do what you want. I can do what I want. And you say, nobody can stop me. I can live my life how I please. That's right. And you'll have to live with it too. And when the day comes, when the chickens come home to roost, when the harvest comes ripe, just as no one was capable to stop you from making the decisions you wanted to make, you too will be incapable of stopping the consequences of coming home to your life. There's a price to ignoring this rule. But can I say this? There is a prize for embracing this rule. Hey, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. In other words, Paul draws this analogy to our spiritual life. And then he says this, Be not weary in well-doing. He just got through saying, Hey, be not deceived! He looks at that crowd that's going the wrong way. He says, Be not deceived. But he looks at that crowd that's still doing it the right way. And he says, And you all, be not weary in well-doing. Why? For in due season ye shall reap if you faint not. Hey, don't quit doing the right thing. It's true. If you're doing the wrong thing, it ought to scare you that you're going to reap what you sow. But if you're doing the right thing, it ought to steal your mind that you're going to reap what you sow. Don't give up. Hey, listen, parent, that you're praying for your kid, don't give up. Hey, hey Mama and Papa's praying for your grandchild, don't give up. Husbands praying for your wife, wife praying for your husband. Don't give up in due season. Ye shall reap if you faint not. Because guess what? You reap what you sow. If you'll plant spiritual influence in their life, if you'll storm the throne room of God and grab hold of the horns of the altar and beg God to change their life, if you'll do that, you'll reap what you sow. The Bible says about prayer that if we'll pray in secret, our Father that seeth in secret will reward us openly. God will bring a harvest to that thing in due season. Not in your season or my season, but in due season you shall reap if you faint not. There is a prize 
for embracing this truth. Be not deceived. We're going to have to live with how we live. We're going to have to face the consequences of it. So we ought to be sowing the right thing, not the wrong thing. Because sooner rather than later, there's a harvest time coming. And we're going to be faced with the reality of the consequences of our life.